You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 100. Today, we're asking the question, can major accidents be prevented? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven. I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast, and welcome, Drew, welcome to, I guess, our 100th episode. So in each episode, and today will be no different, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, 100 episodes feels like a good milestone in terms of statistics, because, you know, in safety, we, we love statistics. We have had three years without a fatality, David. Oh, we're three years fatality free. Get a sign up outside the, the studio. So look, you know, three years, almost three years, um, quarter of a million downloads or so, 120 countries. I think we've got five, a bit over 5,000 followers on our community on LinkedIn. So it's really cool that the podcast has seemed to be something that is is in some ways useful to you know, maybe safety professionals and, and others who think about this stuff in organizations and, and universities more broadly. And I guess, Drew, from me to you, thank you very much. Personally, I greatly appreciated the support and guidance you provided to me during my PhD. And I'm just so pleased that we found a way to, you know, continue to find ways to collaborate. So thanks for being you. Yeah, no, it's been lots of fun and good, good discipline. I don't know how many of our readers have read the papers that we've referenced on each episode. Um, but at least we've read the papers we've referenced on each episode. So it's been, been good to sort of keep up our reading and discussion of both recent stuff published and as we've done a little bit more recently, going back to some of the classics and giving them a reread. And so we kind of thought for this, you can't, you can't, there's, there's a lot of pressure to, uh, to think about what are we going to do for episode 100. But true to our purpose for this show, it's about the science of safety. So we wanted to try to find, you know, maybe a central question in safety and you know, we, we sort of landed on this idea of, you know, can major incidents be prevented? You know, this idea of, you know, all accidents can be prevented. And and so we kind of wanted to get into that question. We've, I think we've found a way of doing that. But Drew, I guess we're, we're going to talk about a book today, a theory book. And and do we want to just talk a little bit about, about safety science or theory more broadly and um, how we should think about something when we're, because you and I, I think are going to have some different opinions of what we talk about today in some ways. So, do you want to just talk a little bit about, you know, when one person comes up with an idea? Sure. So I, I don't think it's ever the case that anyone comes up with safety theory in a vacuum. Everyone who comes to safety is always steeped in some sort of literature and research understanding that they're bringing to the topic. More recently, when people do safety work, they're steeped in the history of previous safety work. But safety science hasn't actually been around that long. And so particularly in the 70s and 80s, we had all of these people coming into safety from outside. Uh, we had people from psychology like James Reason and Nancy Levison. Uh, we had people from sociology like you, Barry Turner and Nick Pidgeon and the author we're talking about today, Charles Pro. Uh, we had people coming from management and engineering, like the HRO scholars who followed on behind um, Charles Pro's work. And so, yeah, no one comes out of nowhere, but everyone is sort of responding to what is important and salient at the time that they start looking into it. 
And I think people's ideas about what causes accidents get very heavily shaped by the first couple of accidents that they look at. You know, if you come at safety and the first thing you read is the Challenger investigation, that gives you sort of one view about how accidents happen. Um, you come and look at something like Three Mile Island, you get a very different perspective. So, Drew, I think that's important. I think it's important to understand, you know, these these theories, how, whether they're people trying to make sense and patterns in the world or trying to make up for things that occur in the world which don't seem to be explained by by other theories. So I like this work, and I think this is probably an understated work in in safety, as, as hopefully we can talk about. But we are going to talk about uh, Charles Perrault's book titled Normal Accidents, Living with High-Risk Technologies, uh, first published in 1984. It's about 450 pages long. It's not a small book, but it's a, it's quite an easy read. Drew, I don't know what, what version you're working off. I'm working off a 1999 print, which has got a few extra afterwards and you know some interesting stuff about the Y2K bug, if people remember what was happening in 99, 2000. But, but look, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a book that I think is well worth a read from anyone who's interested in safety. And before we dive into it, Drew, I think Charles Perrault, he was born in 1925. He unfortunately passed away a few years ago. His last post was as an emeritus professor of sociology at Yale, and he was also a visiting professor at Stanford. And he was primarily concerned with the impact of large organizations on society. Most of his work was on the sociology of organizations, complexity. Um, he had a very long academic career. I think he got his PhD in the 19, in 1960. His most widely cited work, Drew, is an, a publication titled Complex Organizations, a critical essay from the early 1970s. And even though he went on to publish about Fukushima and another book called How Catastrophes Happen, uh, most of his work, you know, he continued a lot of work outside of safety. And, and I don't think he would have ever really considered himself a safety scientist, Drew. He published on climate change, on politics, on the economy, on social challenges like conservative radicalism. And he published his last peer-reviewed publication in 2013 when he was about 88 years old, Drew. So maybe maybe we might be podcasting still in, in 40 or 45 years' time. Who knows? I'd like to think we had careers that long. I'd also like to hope that sort of generating a little bit of controversy is a good way of sustaining a career because it certainly worked for – yeah, Pro, Pro definitely wouldn't consider himself a safety scientist because he – deliberately positioned himself against the academic establishment in safety. He had some um, sort of knockdown drag out fights with some of the sort of key figures around his time. Like he even talks in the book about a review he gave of Paul Slovic's work on risk. And so I don't, I don't, we've touched a little bit on Slovic, I think in a previous episode, David, Slovic was talk, talking about the sort of difference between expert perceptions of risk and lay perceptions of risk. And Perot was very much of the idea that expert opinions were just as socially constructed and just as subject to bias as lay people's and was very sceptical of things like quantitative risk assessment, particularly as applied to things like nuclear power. Yeah, great. So you mentioned nuclear power there, Drew, and I think I want to throw to you early on that because I guess this book fell out, and I will use the word fell out. I'll talk about that shortly, but it fell out of the Three Mile Island incident in the US in 1979. And so nuclear power and nuclear weapons are a fairly central theme of Perot's argument. And so do you want to sort of maybe make some, I know you've got some opening thoughts about that, and then we can step off from there. Yeah, I, I thought it might be worth early on sort of noting and then sort of putting aside some of Perot's, Perot's ideological bent. 
Because it's funny, for, for an author who I agree with an awful lot about, I absolutely hate the way all of his writing is coloured by what I, I think can only be fairly called a bias against nuclear power. In, in the, this, this entire book is as much an argument against the adoption of nuclear power as it is a theory about why accidents happen. And so Pro is constantly sort of struggling to explain what makes nuclear power special compared to other industries. And it involves all sorts of sort of weird special pleading and you know, setting up a definition and then subverting his own definition when he comes to apply it to nuclear power. So, yeah, and, and that is sort of throughout his career, Perot has sort of constantly come back to nuclear accidents as both the thing that drew people's attention to his work on safety and his sort of ongoing argument against the establishment, particularly his sort of persistent attempts to claim that he predicted future nuclear accidents, even though most of the things that he predicted never actually came true. You know, he has a whole chapter on why haven't there been more nuclear accidents. And pretty much his main argument there is, oh, it hasn't been around long enough, just give it 20 years and there'll be heaps of accidents. And it just never came to pass. And, and even the scale of future accidents was something that he's constantly sort of re-arguing. So th there is a sort of reading of this book purely as this is Perot's fight against nuclear power. And I think that's sort of worth setting aside because a lot of his arguments really aren't about nuclear power fundamentally. He just likes to treat it specially. And really what he's doing is introducing some things uh, almost like co-inventing. I can't see any sort of sign that he was aware of Barry Turner's work. Barry Turner's book came out first, but this was in a time when like personal computers were sort of invented while Perot was writing the book. He talks about sort of how his work got sped up when he first got a personal computer. And so the ability of people sort of at different sides of the world to encounter each other's work and understand sort of where progress had been made sort of relies on you knowing who else is working on the same things. So although Perot, you know, has a long, long list of references and he gives credit to, I think, a total of about 20 different graduate students who helped him write the book, a lot of the other work in safety he just never encountered, which I don't think is his fault. You know, there are lots of people today who've never heard of Barry Turner. But anyway, sorry, the point I was getting at was that he sort of independently invented a lot of sort of foundational thinking in safety that he wasn't the first to think of it, but he also did it without sort of standing on the shoulders of other people who had those same ideas. Yeah, Drew, and I think, I think safety science, if we talk about it as a bit of a niche field today, back then, I guess it wasn't even so much as a field. So he would have had to go looking in, for him, rather obscure human factors journals or cognitive systems engineering journals or something like that, which um, from his point of view, he was doing a sociological expose on Three Mile Island. So how this, how this started is... There's this incident, and, and I don't know, Drew, you might have done disaster cast episode on TMI, but there was this incident in 1979, I guess a near disaster. And Professor Cora Marritt, she was appointed to the President's Commission on the Accident, and she also happened to be a board member of the Social Science Research Council. And she was kind of really wanting to make sure there was some social science input into what she felt was threatened to be a very entirely engineering orientated investigation into the incident. So she reached out to a whole bunch of people, including Perot, who she was aware of through sort of sociology and social science. And she said, look, I can provide you with all of the hearing transcripts from the three months of all of the interviews and all the hearing transcripts. 
and you've got three weeks to give me a 10-page report on how you see the social science side of this incident. And Pro went off and he said, you know, he, like you said, Drew, he involved some of his graduate students. He he went off and wrote 40 pages within those three weeks and he he sent it back and he kind of says he started this book without knowing that he was starting a book. And four years after he wrote that 40-page essay, it became, you know, the book that we're reviewing today. So is that how normal books start, Drew, in the academic world? Certainly in safety, it seems like a lot of books start off as 40 pages that someone stretches out to a book by adding in more examples and chapters to get it up to book length. Something which I think Perot definitely avoids in the sense that even though he does sort of repeat the same idea over multiple examples, every chapter brings a whole heap of new information and new analysis and even new sort of theoretical ideas come out in each chapter. And I guess to our listeners now, after 10 minutes, they're probably going, whoa, you know, 450 pages. <laughs> this is a long, a long listen. We're, we're going to spend most of our time on the introduction and, and, and encourage you to kind of just explore these ideas for yourself. But what, what Perot is basically saying is, look, this is, you know, the late seventies, well, it's the early eighties. And he's saying, look, there's a huge growth in high risk technologies. The technology is multiplying. He talked a lot about wars multiplying, Drew. I think this might have, he'd lappled nuclear weapons alongside nuclear power as well. Said, look, we're invading more of nature. We're creating these complex systems. We're creating organizations within organizations. And so what he wanted to do is he, he looks, you know, a number of these types of systems. So nuclear power, we've mentioned. He looked at chemical, petrochemical plants, aircraft, air traffic control, ships dams, mines, nuclear weapons, and what he called exotic technologies, so space missions, DNA, genetic engineering, um, those types of things. And he's sort of saying that every year there's more of these such systems, and Pro kind of suggested that this is bad news. So I guess he was just seeing this huge growth in technological systems, the social impact, because he was quite socially orientated as well, which you mentioned about nuclear power, but even more, he was quite critical of society not getting a choice in the adoption of these types of technologies that favoured the elites within within society. And so we kind of just said, look, this is this is not a good thing. And you know, if you want to if we want to have all these technologies or if people think that we should have all these technologies, then we need to be pre- prepared for the disasters that are going to come. Yeah. He's, he's, he's got a real skepticism of technological power. So in particular the idea that you should have, you could have a system that society might not otherwise accept that is assured and society is told that it's safe using obscure methods and people and regulatory regimes that society is just sort of expected to trust. I, I don't think he quite gives enough credit to just how transparent some of these processes are. Uh, you know, this was, he was writing this after the Wash 1400 report and all of the criticisms of that report. So, you know, the, the idea that risk assessment of nuclear power stations needed to be more transparent and needed to be more honest about its uncertainty was something that was already sort of out there in the public domain at the time when, when he was doing this writing. But he was still very sort of sceptical about this idea that experts know best and that, you know, expert opinions of risk should be given precedent over social understanding of risk. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what um, I, I guess what Perot says in early in the book is what motivated the inquiry and the book was his was the idea that if we can understand a quote, if we can understand the nature of risky enterprises better, we may be able to reduce or even remove the dangers. So even though 
yeah, every time he 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 sort of says throughout the book that you know we could do this, but we're not. But but I don't think it's going to happen. We could do this, but you know, but I don't think it's going to happen. He also went on to take a first shot at, I guess, more conventional safety management because he says, look, there's many improvements we can make for, you know, to improve safety, operator training, better designs, quality control. And he basically said, look, people are working on these things, but the risks appear faster than these risk reductions can, you know, can help. And so what he, what he basically says is that no matter how effective our conventional safety approaches are, there's a form of accident that is inevitable. And he kind of believed there is there were some special characteristics of the way that failures can interact within these systems, and you know, but we should be able to understand them to understand how they can occur, and uh, and in his words, why they always will. David, I think it might be worth it this time just sort of laying out the main sort of central steps in his argument, just so that uh, listeners have some idea of just what he's actually what he's actually like concretely claiming here. Yeah, so this is this is I'll, I'll lay out his core argument and then and then a quick example, Drew, and I'm I'm keen for your thoughts thoughts on it. So he says, look, you start with a a petrochemical plant, a plane, a ship, a power station, one of these complex high risk technologies. It's any system that has lots of compl- components. There's lots of engineered parts. There's lots of procedures. There's lots of operators. And what we need is two or more failures among these components that interact in some unexpected way. So no one thought that when X failed, Y would also be out of order or, you know, be impacted. And these two failures, these two or more failures would interact and then break the system. So the example is, you know, at the same time a fire starts, an alarm gets gets silenced. Uh, and, and I guess further, no one can figure out this interaction in real time and, and respond accordingly. The problem never really occurred to the designer. If it doesn't, you know, the next time they will put an additional control in, uh, this new control might solve one problem, but it might introduce three new failure points uh, through these interactions. So he called this the interactive complexity of the system. And he, I guess he was leaning heavily on this idea of tightly coupled systems, which have been in, I guess, engineering for the last decade at the time of writing. And so I guess 40 years later, Drew, um, if we think about the two Boeing aircraft crashes on the um 787 Max aircraft, they kind of laid out his arguments. It says there's going to be a, there's get like this software system, this NCAS software system, it's going to fail. The pilot's not going to respond how the designers would have expected them to respond. If you combine the failed system with the the unexpected operator response, then those two components combine in a way that I guess leads to the disaster. And you can't prevent it the first time. You can only try to fix it the second time. David, I want to be sort of be clear, spelling out the sort of second element here, because there's two paired concepts that he talks about. One of them is this interactive complexity, and he makes the argument that only certain systems have this complexity. And so this is where this is where I think his sort of bias and some of his lack of understanding of different industries means that he's kind of weird as which industry he spells out as having interactive complexity and which ones don't. For example, he specifically says that like aircraft don't have as much interactive complexity. And he says that your chemical plants don't have as much interactive complexity. And I think future accidents have shown that this ability to not understand how multiple failures could occur and interact is pretty much true across any industry. But the second concept, he says, is he calls it tightly coupled, which is really confusing because he's drawing on something which in organizational theory, Carl Reich had previously talked about. And in engineering, we use the term tightly coupled as well. 
And Perot doesn't actually mean either of the existing definitions of tightly coupled. What he's talking about is something that I think today we'd think of more as brittleness. So for him, a tightly coupled system is one where there's very little margin, either margin in extra resources or margin in flexibility or margin in time. And he says you, you can have a very complex system, but as so long as you have got that, what we'd now call resilience, it's okay because you've got time and you've got space to work out what's going on and adapt. It's when you've got everything is very time sensitive and everything is very closely linked so that one step inevitably leads to the next step and you've got no flexibility of action. It's when you've got both of those things being high. That's when you have a really high potential for an accident. And the, and the real funny thing he, here is just which systems he singles out as having this and when it does and doesn't lead to an accident. So, I mean, Three Mile Island is a perfect example of a system which had the interactive complexity, but actually had plenty of time. And that's why the accident didn't in fact happen. Three Mile Island was an incident, not an accident, precisely because the events uh, sort of extended over several days, which was enough time for people to react and work out what was going on and adapt and fix the situation. Yeah, Drew, I, I've said, you know, I, I believe that you're right. It's if we've got enough time, if we've got enough information, if we've got enough resources, we we can solve any operational problem. It's when we get constrained by time, information, or resources where we can't stay ahead of ahead of the risk. And I think my only my only comment about the classification of industry for Perot is I think it's a typical sociological classification. He was just looking at what systems involve more people interactions as opposed to you know interactions themselves. So. A plane seemed very simple to him because you got two people in the front, whereas air traffic control, communication between the control and the, the ground and the pilots seemed much more complex to, to a sociologist. Yeah, that, that's something that I think is really interesting. And one of the reasons why this book rewards reading it rather than just listening to a quick summary of it is Perot was one of the very first thinkers, uh, pretty much I think apart from Turner, to not stop at the technical level when analysing a system. And he's quite inconsistent about when he does it and when he doesn't do it. But I think that's just because he's one of the first people like feeling out these ideas. But he says like some of the complexity isn't in the technology, the complexity is in the organisation around it. But at one point he makes the argument that like aircraft are not so complicated, even though they're very high tech, because they're well regulated and the regulation system works fairly well. And one of his arguments against nuclear is he thinks that the regulatory structure isn't effective. So he sort of like moves in and out of technical complexity versus organizational and effective management of the technology. Yeah, so I think um, I think you're right. I think I guess it's it's great to see, and and I agree it deserves reading because you know moving beyond either the the mechanical failure or the operator failure. Um, into the organization is is a great contribution of of this work. And so he opens in the first few pages of the book. It's a long story about everyday life, but he basically talks about this event where I need to go to a really important business meeting. I think he says a job interview. And then he goes, but I've locked myself out of my apartment because I've raced out without my car keys and my and I normally have a spare set of keys, but I lent them to someone, so I'm locked out of my apartment. And so I go to my neighbor and go, that's fine. I'll just borrow my neighbor's car. But my neighbor's car won't start. Uh, and then I go, okay, well, that's fine. I'll just call a taxi. But I can't call a taxi because there's a bus strike on on that day because, you know, the buses ironically are complaining about a safety issue and 
something else. So he misses this 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 job interview, and I guess he Crow asked the question of you know what do you think is the cause of this incident? Is it human error because you locked yourself out of your apartment? And he says if you agree with that, then you agree with the president's commission for Three Mile Island, which primarily blamed the worker and the OEM. You know only blame the operators and and no one else for the event. Or he goes, is it the mechanical failure, which is that the neighbor's car won't start? And he said, you know, the company operating TMI blamed, you know, the individual valves and sued the supplier of those valves. And he goes, or do you do you talk about the environment or the design of the system as a whole? And I guess what Pro's saying is the cause is kind of none of the above because we can deal with locking our key, uh, locking ourselves out of our apartment. We can also deal with the neighbor's car not working, and we can deal with, you know, a bus strike or a taxi. And so he's sort of saying, you know, this idea of which one is it misses the point because the failures alone are trivial, even banal. And the idea is this perfect storm when the system design all kind of falls apart at once. So, Drew, what do you, I guess that's, I thought it was quite a nice, quite, a, quite an easy to understand story about it, what, his, what his argument was. Yes. And, and, and I think this sort of like raises one of the key questions in safety. And in fact, the question of this episode, that it's inevitable that the individual failures are going to happen. You're in any sufficiently complex system, you're going to have lots of individual failures. It's inevitable that some of those failures are going to interact in dangerous ways. So the question is, can we either predict or otherwise prevent the dangerous combinations from arising? And different people have got different answers to those questions. So you have the sort of safety engineering approach, which says that with sufficient engineering analysis, we can work out what the dangerous combinations are and we can make sure that they don't happen. The particular approach that they use in uh, nuclear, which Pro is very critical of, is defense in depth, where we build multiple layers so that if one layer fails, we've always got other layers to catch. And Pro sort of like rightly argues, yeah, but that assumes that each layer is in independent and they're not. There can be things that you haven't thought of that cause those layers to interact with each other. But then you've also got things like the HRO argument, which says, yeah, we can design systems that can be robust even when multiple failures happen. Uh, Perot's answer is, in certain industries, because of the level of interactive complexity and tight coupling, it's inevitable that we're not going to successfully prevent the unsafe interactions. And sort of that's where the whole idea of normal accidents is. That it's inevitable that we are going to fail. And I think, Drew, it's a, yeah, this this point of multiple failures, and and I mean, I mean, we've got the language for this now in in risk engineering and independent protection layers, and Bro's argument that you know locking yourself out should be independent of the neighbor's car, which should be independent of the bus strike, but you know, bus strike, but nothing stops these things failing at the same time. And I guess, Drew, I'm interested if you know any link, I guess, between Reasons Work and Pro, because. You know, Prost says in this book, you know, the accidents are the result of multiple failures. And I guess a couple of years later, we got the Swiss cheese model, which was this idea of, you know, multiple causation of incidents. So I guess by now there is some progression of Prost's idea into safety science, if they were, in fact, I guess his ideas. I, I tried to actually bottom out some of the starting points of these things, but it's actually a very hard to, hard thing to do, which is to try to find when the first appearance of a particular idea seemed to seem to turn up. So I did a little bit of a deep dive into this one, David. By the time that um, James Reason wrote his book on human error in 1990, the idea was 
swimming around the zeitgeist in a number of different ways. Uh, so, Re- so Reason's book is actually dedicated to Jens Rasmussen. He cites Dave Woods multiple times in his book. And Woods, of course, building on the work of both Rasmussen and Turner. So the idea of organisational accidents and man-made disasters through the organisation rather than through the individual components or human error was very widely spread. But the difference is that most of those other authors weren't really interested in individual human error rather than technological failure. And so Reason sort of pulled it back into the area of sort of individual psychology and talking about system failure in contrast to human error, whereas previously people had been talking about system failure in contrast to component failure. Yeah, and I think that's uh, – so I, I guess this is this collection of ideas at the time, and we even see it now. If anyone tried to unpick – if anyone tried to unpick Safety 2 and resilience engineering and safety differently and human organisational performance, it would be very hard to figure out where these ideas – because you can read this book around normal accidents – and, you know, the role of the operator error and it can feel like you're reading something of Sidney Decker's work, you know, in, in this book, which feels like you're reading someone else's work. And it's, it's sort of hard to know only that I guess science does what science does is builds on the ideas of, of other people and, and extends them a little bit. Yeah. You can sometimes track it either through direct citations or through the way people use particular ideas and like particular language they use to refer to it. So, you know, you can tell from the term tight coupling that Perot is drawing, drawing on organisational theory and the same sort of space that Karl Reich was operating in. And you can tell directly that because Reason cites Perot, that Reason has at least knows that Perot exists and has read his work. And it's kind of telling that Reason only talks about Perot in the context of Three Mile Island. When he's generally talking about systems accidents, he talks about other authors. So you can sort of read between the lines and say, okay, Reason was aware of Perot's work, but likes these other explanations more when it comes to system accidents. Yeah. So Drew, what I thought we'd do in the interest of kind of getting this 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 podcast out, out in some reasonable time frame is there's about five topics that, that are introduced in the introduction that I think are worth having a brief talk about. And then I thought we'd just overview each of the chapters and then just pick off some, you know, what does Pro actually think is the way forward from there? So Maybe if I if I start. So one of the first thing is that I guess Pro started with this idea about operator error, and he said in virtually every every system places operator error really high on the list of causal factors for accidents. So all of these industries are saying if there's a problem, you know, he says sixty to eighty percent of the time these you know this is labelled as operator error, and I guess his view is that we shall see this time and time again that our operators are confronted by unexpected situations. So if you say that they should have zigged when they zagged. You know, it's only possible to actually make this judgment after the fact. You know, and so he pretty much discounts this idea of, you know, this is a bigger issue than safety in these systems is a bigger issue than operator error. Yeah. And and I think that's one of the most important parts of Perot's analysis of Three Mile Island is the effectively he goes through the details and basically says, like, you know, based on the information that they had in front of them, the operators took reasonable steps to prevent an accident at the same time as they were taking exactly the right steps to cause the accident. And that sort of understanding that, you know, in hindsight, you can say they did the wrong thing. But if you look carefully at what they knew, they should have done exactly what they did. And that's a paradox that someone trying to explain an accident needs to explain. 
and this this was done in the eighties and nineties in simulated nuclear control room environments in in aircraft simulators, and and so we 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 understand we understand this now. The the second point that he said is that great events have small beginnings. So this is this idea that you know what is what may be just a trivial mishap on a ship or a plane in a nuclear power plant. You know, small failures abound in big systems. And he's saying like accidents, aircraft aren't crashing because the wings are falling off the planes, but it's a combination of individually quite benign and and trivial type of situations that combine in kind of an unforeseen way and uh, and result in the incident. So it might be, you know, one sensor in a control room not working, which doesn't alert the operator to something, which then flows into, you know, an overfill situation, which then doesn't. So, so it's this sort of what would be labeled in resilience engineering more as a cascade. So this idea in complex system that the flaps of, you know, a butterfly flapping its wings creates a tidal wave on the other side of the ocean. David, the one other thing I'd throw there though, is that he's, he's makes a distinction between cascade accidents where each one of these small things causes the next thing and combination accidents where two things are not sort of directly caused, they're linked by some sort of unknown behind the scenes um, link. So he says that, you know, the, the sort of like really dangerous things is when two small things happen that aren't linked in a way that the operators would readily recognize them as linked. Um, you know, two lights go off on the display and they're two totally separate systems. What you don't know is that they both happen to be on the same circuit, which has caused both lights to blink. Yeah. So, Drew, the third point, I guess, in the introduction is he, he goes straight in, I guess, to his sociological, sociological and, and I guess, organisational uh, domain and talks about the role of organisations and management in preventing failures or causing them. So, he says, look, we talk a lot about hardware, we talk about temperature, and we talk about acute physical conditions of systems. And he says, but high-risk systems have a double penalty because accidents stem from, you know, they stem from failures closest to the system. So operators have to take this independent and creative action to respond to these situations. But because everything is tightly coupled, what organizations are trying to do is tightly control everything that operators do because the organization knows that operators are not aware of the broader functioning of the rest of the system. But he says, here, there's a bind here because an organization can't be both controlled centrally and decentralized at the same time. So he says, like, organizations are pushing and pulling at the same time. And, you know, Pro suggested, you know, that time and time again in organizations that the warning of problems are ignored, unnecessary risks are taken, sloppy work is done. And then he went on to talk about deception and downright lying is practiced inside organizations. So I found this section just a bit of a muddled stab at just organizations and, and management. But I don't know what you took out of this part of the intro. So so partly what Pro was doing was responding to criticisms of his own work while it was in an embryonic stage and also responding to a lot of the defenses that people made for nuclear safety after Three Mile Island. So I read this book a little bit similar to uh, John Downer's Disowning Fukushima where John Downer goes through, you know, people are trying to say, oh, the next accident won't happen because of this, 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 and this. And one of the things that people were saying, oh, after Three Mile Island, we're going to have better regulation to stop this. You know, maybe if the government takes a closer direct control over nuclear power plants, that will be the solution. And so what he's doing is he's responding to that suggestion and saying, you know, be, be, be careful. It's like a balloon where you sort of like squeeze down on one part of the balloon, the next part of the balloon squeezes out try to grab too tight hold over the complexity by putting in centralized control and you just make your system more tightly coupled. 
Yeah, Andrew, I guess you're just speaking so passionately today about nuclear power. Maybe we could do the John Downer episode next time. I think, um, you know, does distance really create difference and um, or something like that? All right. I know you know that paper very well because you use it in the in the master's and graduate program at Griffith. Oh, I hadn't actually realized we hadn't done an episode on John Downer's work. We've, 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 we've got to do that. That's a... All right, we might do a little nuclear series. All right, so the fourth point here is that better technology is not the answer. So I guess what Pro's saying here is it's kind of like, you know, if we say that better operators aren't the silver bullet, then we probably must also agree that better technology is not the answer either. So even though Pro points out that this book is all about technology, he also quotes kind of this, this, this idea that, and in the quote, a man's reach has always been beyond his grasp. And just as an aside, Drew, when, when Pro publishes this, he quotes that, Man's reach has always been beyond his grasp and in brackets. And of course, that goes for women too. And I don't know if you realize, but whenever Pro talked about operators in this book, he referred to to the operator as she or her. And I just noticed it immediately as, and it's refreshingly progressive for a text of this nature in the 1980s to intentionally label all of these uh, domains in the feminine. So. I need to go back and have a look. I'm reading a different version than you, so I'm wondering oh. if that's one bit that got updated. Um, I'm wondering uh-huh. if he also pulled out all of his climate change scepticism. <laughs> He's got a whole section in the 1984 bit that is um, saying, talking about how nuclear power gets defended based on fears of climate change. And he doesn't like totally say climate change isn't real, but he's got lots of ifs in there, you know, if this turns out to be true. He was very clear, though, what we'll get to at the end around nuclear power is that the benefits of nuclear power far outweigh, you know, the, the risks involved and perhaps perhaps the risks are seen as different now. And the, the last point through here is that he talks about the issue is not risk, but power. And this is his sort of back on to the sort of the sociological aspects of, of, of technology adoption and capitalism and I guess the social construction of, of communities and societies. And he, he sort of foreshadows the risk here, the rise of the risk professional. And I guess he suggests that it would be dangerous to let the risk assessors or the risk uh, managers basically provide the advice and direction for how to manage these technologies. So he devotes a whole chapter to this new profession. He's kind of labels them as, you know, this idea of risk assessors, you know, using body counting to replace social and cultural values and that these risk processes exclude society for from participating in decisions that, you know, a few people who benefit have decided that the many cannot do without. So very uh, socialist. David- David, there's a paragraph. There's a paragraph I have to read to you from the introduction. Readers might have got a bit of a sense so far that I'm not Perot's biggest fan, but for someone that I don't like, there's a lot of areas where we're in total disagreement. So, yeah, here's a paragraph for you, David. One last warning before outlining the chapters to come: the new risks have produced a new breed of shamans called risk assessors. As with the shamans and the physicians of old, it might be more dangerous to go to them for advice than to suffer unattended. In our last chapter, we will examine the dangers of this new alchemy, where body counting replaces social and cultural values and excludes us from participating in decisions about the risks that a few have decided the many cannot do without. So you agree or disagree, Drew? I'm not quite sure. Oh, there's so many bits there that just sound like my own paper titles. <laughs> oh, okay, I think you said disagree at the start because you said I think you said for someone who, who I don't like the work, I, I disagree. But I think you meant to say agree. Oh no, I, I disagree a lot with Perot, but there's then there's so many areas like this that I just sort of want to say yeah. 
I think in terms of your work, Drew, in in risk and probative blindness and, you know, the cracks in the crystal ball. And for those listeners, I don't think we've covered all of, well, we don't think we've covered a lot of your your work in that space, Drew. I think a, a dinner party with you and Perot talking about risk would be a fascinating conversation to be a fly on the wall for. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree 100% with Perot's stance that the risks of nuclear power in terms of likelihood are drastically underestimated by the published risk assessments. I I think he's absolutely right that at the time he published this, nuclear accidents were just far more common than anyone was willing to admit. And the likelihood of nuclear accidents was far higher than any of the risk assessments said. Where I think he is empirically wrong and has just been proven to be so by history since is that the size of the accidents is much lower than the critics of nuclear power like to suggest. Nuclear accidents are actually a relatively common, not particularly harmful event, whereas the people who want to defend it want to say it's not common. The people who want to attack it want to say it's catastrophic and it's neither catastrophic nor rare. Yeah, so Joe, I think there's um now I guess over time I guess we get we get the benefit of a little bit more time since since he was authoring this, but I think he's doubling down on it isn't necessarily the greatest thing for a sort of a science person to to do when there's new information available. So let's talk about these chapters, Drew. And and I guess there was an interesting thing as I read through these chapters and the technologies that he chose and the time that he published that, you know, the next chapter after the intro is titled Normal Accident at Three Mile Island. So he goes on to talk about the TMI accident. And then he has this chapter as, if that's not enough, this chapter titled Nuclear Power is a High-Risk System. And the idea is why we have not had more Three Mile Islands, but we will soon. And I guess two years later, we we did have Chernobyl, which is kind of like, I guess, the largest nuclear disaster that we've had. Um, talk about maybe, it, I suppose it's all debatable. Some people think that there was 4,000 relatable deaths. Um, but then he went on to talk about complexity, coupling, and cat- catastrophe. So even though he said he was going to talk about this different industry, he kind of had these three chapters where he just really tried to double down on this nuclear situation, Drew. And then I guess I'll run through and get your thoughts. He talked about petrochemical plants. And in December of 84, we had Bhopal, so 4,000 to 16,000 deaths. He talked about aircrafts and air traffic control. And the next year in 85, Japan Airlines 123 happened. Um, I think that was the largest the largest incident in terms of fatality count of civil aviation with 520 people killed. We talked about marine accidents, I guess, at the time, and Exxon Valdez came a few few years later. Earthbound systems, dams, earthquakes, mines, lakes. And then these, what he called exotics, through space, uh, weapons, DNA. I guess two years later, we had challenges. So I guess if you pick all the risky technologies, then you're bound to be a little bit right over the next couple of years of things happening. But uh, I guess he was eerily predictive of these big events in the next couple of years. Yes. So Nick Pidgeon published an article in 2011, which was a retrospective of normal accidents. And he basically starts off saying, in publishing much hinges on timing, (laughs) so it was with Charles Perrault's influential book, Normal Accidents, its publication in 1984 was followed by a string of major technological disasters and goes on to list the ones that you just list. He says you each cried out for the sort of detailed analysis that Perrault supplied. Um, And I think pretty much all of those did get a really in-depth Perrault-style treatment, which is what you maybe sort of like, he and Turner almost like started a trend of this sort of deep sociological analysis of individual accidents. 
Yeah, and I think then by the time we got to Challenger and Diane Vaughan's work and 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 some of the other work, I, I think it did spawn, I guess, a, a new level of detail. And maybe we can put all of that back to um to the the foresight of Cora Marit, who was who was appointed to this commission and said I, we need a social science perspective on this and and drew that into the Three Mile Island incident because you know if you talk to Professor David Woods, you know he would say that Three Mile Island also spurred the whole resilience engineering to come in the 1983 conference, which pulled. Which which got reason and and Holnagel and Woods and and all of them together to to sort of start that that I guess that that field that became resilience engineering and also the funding that came along with it with the book in 1994 the book that came out behind Human Error which was sort of funded based off that trend at the time so Drew I guess there's I mean they, look all of those chapters they're actually really good reads because it just it's just littered with uh with disasters and I guess prose analysis of that and in some of that analysis I guess. Through it. There was a little bit of, um, you know, Professor Andrew Hopkins writing in terms of this retrospective sociological perspective where you can kind of like just write the disaster, I guess, reviews in the way that you want them to sound based on the theory that you're trying to put forward. But they are very easy to read and, and interesting reads um, in each of those chapters. Yes. There are a number of accidents I'd love to sort of take back to Perot and get him to comment on. So, for example, he talks about dam disasters being really simple technological failures. And I'd love to sort of get him to have a look at the, like, Brisbane Brisbane floods and the social role there or some of the Chinese dam failures. And so, yeah, I don't think that's a criticism of Pro. I just think his analysis could actually extend to a broader range of systems even than he seems to think. Yeah, so Drew, let's talk. Let's let's move on and talk about. So in chapter nine, he talks about living with these high risk systems, and so yeah, he get he basically says, look, you know, readers once by the time you get to page number three hundred and chapter nine, you know, his view is that readers should have in you know one question in the back of their mind, and I guess for me it was you know the front of my mind is kind of, and he says this question is what is to be done. So Pro claims to have a modest but realistic proposal, and he also claimed that it's not likely to be followed because he said. He's proposing three categories of systems or three categories of high-risk technologies. He's saying there's some risky technologies, I think he even called them hopeless technologies, that we should abandon. And he only lumped two in there. He said nuclear power and nuclear weapons. We should abandon those technologies. The risks far outweigh the rewards. Then he said there's systems which we need, but we, we could make them less risky with considerable effort. So he considered marine to be a system that required considerable effort or where the benefits are so great that we should, in fact, take some risks, but not as many as we are now taking. For example, he gave DNA research. And then he said there's some systems that could be further improved with much more modest efforts, and we should take those. So he lumped petrochemical plants and airlines into these systems that you know we could, we could actually just do a little bit and, and make them better. So what are your thoughts, Drew, of... You know, his categorization system. I think his, of course, I'm going to disagree with his categorization of particular industries. But what I think is really fascinating, particularly given when this was written, is what he actually means by making the industries safer. Because, you know, you'd think when people use language like that, they're talking about things like greater regulation, better risk assessment, you know, stricter regimes. But he's not his idea for making systems safer is to do what you can to decouple them and to do what you can to make them simpler, both in the technology and in the um, organization. But yeah, and his ideas, I think, 
are sort of limited a little bit just by his understanding of what future technology was going to look like. So, for example, his idea of decoupling the aviation industry is kind of scary. <laughs> it's like, leave it up to individual pilots to work out when they get to land at the airport. And sort of, but actually, those are the sorts of things that people have talked about since in terms of using things like flocking behavior and self regulation to manage flight paths. So, you know, these are, these are not crazy ideas, but they do rely on a real deep trust in the technology that I, I think people might be a little bit uh, more skeptical of than he was. He's not like 100% technological skeptic. He seems to think that you know, a lot of problems can be solved by sort of self-organizing systems with the right technology. Yeah, like I guess that's we haven't talked on the podcast yet. I think about polycentric governance and systems of commons and things like that. But this idea that if if you have people with the same goal, then you're better off letting them self-organize than you are about trying to control. But, you know, there's a lot of assumptions with that sort of process about information, about capability, about about goal hierarchy. And I think um, discussion for another day might be able to do some checking with some of Eleanor's work around that. But, but what, what I think is really interesting is that the people who came after Perot and criticized him were the HRO people who were sort of suggesting something which sort of grew into resilience as a solution for Perot's talking about the inevitability of accidents. Whereas, in fact, where Perot thought that there was opportunity for safety improvement, he was pretty much talking about that same sort of thing in improving safety, not by adding extra layers of protection, but by working out ways to sort of de-risk the entire system by building in more time, more resource, more capacity for responding when something goes wrong. So Drew Perot had sort of detailed three reasons why he feels that his recommendations will be seen as wrong. And he said, look, his recommendations must be judged wrong if the science of risk assessment as it was practiced at the time is correct. So if risk assessment theory at the time suggested that what Perot worried about the most, which was nuclear power and nuclear weapons, you know, if as it hasn't done any real unintended harm to people, then Pro pleaded, although Pro did plead that the risk assessment science deserved far greater scrutiny than it was getting. But he said, look, if you believe it, if you believe the risk assessors, then you can't believe, you know, my theory and my ideas. His second point, Drew, I'll do the three and I'll get your thoughts. Um, his second one was his recommendations could also be wrong if it's shown that they're contrary to public opinion and values. So if he thinks that a technology is not necessary, then and society believes it is, then maybe that changes the weighting of of how much risk um, people would be prepared to take. And you know, at the same time, he had a swipe at cognitive psychology, which suggested, you know, I guess that the general public aren't equipped to make these to make good decisions about complex matters. And his third objection there that he cited as more basic to the theory of his book, he kind of said that look, if you you could object by saying that there is a way to run these systems safely, that it simply requires more authoritarian more rigidly disciplined, error-free organizations. And so I guess there are his three views. And I guess I guess the HRO theorists were the fourth, which says, no, 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 no. There is a there is a way of running these systems, but it's not in that third point the way you describe. So Drew, your thoughts about I mean it's not bad for I guess a theorist to actually say this is what I think people are going to criticize. Yeah, no, I I really like the bravery in putting those things out. If he if he had stuck with them, I would have even more respect for Perot. Because step, step one is sort of double-barreled. He says, if the risk assessors are right and history proves that this is not as dangerous as I think, and I think that's two separate claims, one of them, the risk assessors were not right. You know, future research on risk assessments showed that the risk assessments were just as bad as Pro was claiming. But future experience with nuclear accidents 
said that nuclear accidents didn't happen nearly as often as he was claiming they would, or as bad as he was claiming they would either. But Perot's response to that was then to write, oh, people are underplaying the, the nuclear accidents. So he's basically denying the consensus on how many fatalities there were out of Fukushima and Chernobyl and trying to claim that that was a sort of, he's sort of somewhere between saying that, you know, casualty estimation is a social construct and claiming that there was a massive cover-up. Whereas if he was more honest, he'd just say, look, nuclear accidents didn't happen at the rate I was expecting. You know, new generations of reactors did turn out to be safer, even though I was saying that that wasn't possible. As plants age, no, they didn't start experiencing as many disasters as I thought they would, given that I was looking at an immature technology. So his first point is sort of like half right, half wrong. Yeah, I think and I think you're right. And he did he did he did say in his the edition that I've got that you know in the 15 years since he published, you know, the performance of things like new generation aircraft and like you said, things had changed a bit. Do I want to ask one question because um at the at the lab, Ben Hutchinson's been doing some work on on fantasy planning in in safety, and there's a whole there's a whole um, sort of section in the afterward of the version I've got on fantasy plans and Clark's work and things like that. So when are we going to be ready to get Ben on the podcast and talk about fantasy plans? And so Ben does have some published work, and he's got a couple of works that are sort of in the publication stage. I think we want to wait for the next ones to get through peer review before. Cool. But yeah, it's interesting that Lee Clark gets a credit even in the 1984 version as one of the little little postgrads who are running around doing work for Perot. So it's interesting how this sort of generational stuff happens. Yeah, so for anyone not knowing these fantasy plans, and the example mainly cited in the book is the Exxon Valdez and, you know, that the, the plans around the capability of government and industry to clean up an oil spill were just fanciful. Like, they'd never done it. They never even had access to it. If you read the plan of what they proposed to do, you would never have even thought it or thought it as plausible of what they what they said that they were going to be capable of doing. And so looking forward to discussing that with uh, with Ben at some point. So Drew, is there anything else you want to talk about before we jump into practical takeaways? No, no, I think the takeaways are sort of a good point to sort of look at what we can how much we can sort of talk about today from something that was first published so long ago. So I think uh, I don't quite know how we want to tackle this, but I think this idea is that there's no simple fixes. So in in complex high risk technologies, so the pro, what Pro proposes is more technology is not the answer. So in fact, he goes on to talk about, look, actually, you know, there's some work at the time that suggests that adding more technology is at best risk neutral. And I think every time we add another, which is probably against our thinking around the hierarchy of controls, which is around engineered solutions. But his kind of view was that continually adding more technology in the belief that we're adding more layers of defense, we're in fact adding exponentially more failure modes into the into the system so this idea around technology drew your thoughts on you know practically where do we go with technology and engineering controls so i i think the modern takeaway of what he said is that there is a direct trade-off between adding safety through adding in more controls and decreasing safety by adding in complexity and in any industry, in any situation, that trade-off is going to have a sweet spot. And we can look at that with something like, you know, driving a car. Driving a car, there's obviously a lot of room for increased safety through increased automation of tasks that are very prone to human error. But there is a trade-off that humans' understanding of their own cars is decreasing. And the system itself is becoming more complicated as automated cars interact with automated cars. So, yeah, the, the point there isn't that technology is not a solution, but that 
technology has got these two edges to it. It adds safety at the same time as it adds complexity, which takes away from safety. Yeah, so so technology is both potentially a, a risk control and a and a hazard itself in that simple language. So then the second point then, I guess, beyond technology is that um, the answer, I guess, in Pro's view is unlikely to be taking the operator out of the system. So putting all your faith, he talks about this hierarchy, he talks about this hierarchy of of designers to operators. And so we... Yeah, when we're tr- taking the operator out of the system and 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 putting all the power in the designers to design a system where the operator isn't required, he talked about early unmanned space flight, and you know the the fact that the operators were really just there with a finger on an abort button, and that's about it. Uh, and that was even after the chimpanzees had had a few goes at doing suborbital kind of flights. So taking the operator out of the system is 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 not necessarily the answer, and maybe even beyond that, dumbing down the role of the operator you know, may not necessarily be the answer either. Yeah, I think in modern terms, we'd say that human operators are a really important source of capacity within your system. And that, that, that can be because of their ability to do things that you don't expect, which we might think of as risky. But when things go wrong that we don't expect, we need the operators there. Um, and you see that even in really simple accidents like the King's Cross fire where reducing staffing on trains means that when you have a train fire, there are just fewer people around to help out and solve problems. Also, fewer fatalities as well. So this is these are, this is all trade-offs, isn't it? I guess. Well, I, I think Pro's point is when you've got a system that is presenting danger to lots and lots of people, yeah. then the operators are only just a few extra bodies in the line, but a huge amount of extra capacity to stop something that's going wrong. Yeah, great point. Then this idea, this practical takeaway about being... Being wary of power and hierarchy and the implications for safety. So I do quite like that quote about, you know, maybe and whether you agree or disagree, but the idea that power is an issue in safety may be more important than risk. Um, so, you know, pro cautions that authoritarian regimes are not the answer, that, that, that operators need support, enablement, capability, freedom of action. You know, some of those, the early indications of that. And I guess, I guess we need to understand how power is at play in who gets to decide what and how our organizations function. I have really mixed feelings about sort of Perot's arguments about sort of technological power and the power of expertise. But the one bit that I think I'm very happy to take as a takeaway is we don't think nearly enough about the role of power when we do things like risk assessments and approvals and regulation. And we sort of claim that things are safe for other people even though we've decided the risk, we've decided it's acceptability, and other people are the ones actually facing that risk. Yeah, I think as Sydney Decker would say, who gets to decide in his just culture work is, I guess, not so much about who gets to decide about the risk, but I think that's an important dilemma for organisations to think about just in the normal day-to-day of operations that management get to accept a risk for a risk that workers work with. So, Drew, the last point I had here, and I'm interested in, in more from you, um, you know, maybe the answer here lies in simplicity, like you said about how Pro suggested that systems could be safer. And I guess, you know, the thing, you know, maybe we need to find ways to make things complex. I mean, there's a quote that I really like that sort of says that, you know, any any fool can make a system larger and more complex, but it takes a genius to make something, you know, smaller and, and simpler. And I guess David Wood said in relation to the space shuttle program after the Columbia incident with all of the the way that the the shuttle construction program and the operations program was run and the contracting and, and everything that was going on. He said, why would you want to run into a wall of complexity? Because it hurts when you do that. And Haddon Cave, so Haddon Cave after the Nimrod inquiry, you know, one of his 
four principles in his lips conclusion was that you know from a ministry of defense point of view it was simplicity was the answer for you know what why why would they have built so much complexity into the way that they run that organization so i guess that's uh i guess in our in everything that we've done in safety of work and decluttering i guess simplicity's been being core to a lot of that thinking without us i guess expressly saying it so david i think i should give a shout out here to dr ben seligman out at uq um i don't know if he's listening but his, he's got an idea that we shouldn't be even assessing risk at all in the current terms. What we really should be doing when we do assessments of systems is assessment of complexity, because that's really what drives safety risk, is as the complexity of a system increases, the safety risk increases. We don't know exactly why or where, but that's the whole point. And so we should be creating incentives for people to reduce the complexity of their systems as much as possible and sort of put downward pressure on complexity, which otherwise is just constantly going up. And your Perot sort of makes the argument that safety puts upward pressure on complexity instead of downward pressure. Yeah, and I think, Drew, from my, from my perspective, you know, what comes with complexity is uncertainty. And, you know, I'm a big believer that uncertainty is what we should be worried about as opposed to risk because you know, we can manage high risk situations really well if we understand the nature of the hazard and, 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 you know, how the hazard can manifest into the risk. You know, people do live line, high voltage electrical transmission work every day, you know, very, very safely in the presence of more than a hundred thousand volts of live electricity, you know, and, and so maybe it's, it's around complexity and the uncertainty that complexity creates as pro would say, you know, the, the ways that systems interact in ways that we don't understand. So I think. Maybe these ideas of complexity and uncertainty are more important in safety and safety science than absolute risk. So, Drew, all right. The question that we asked this week for episode number 100 was, can major accidents be prevented? Uh, you want a short answer to that question, David? Yeah, why not? We, 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 we've had decades of debate ever since about, and I think the obvious answer is not entirely and it's an ongoing project just to understand why. Why we can't. Yeah. You know, the, the, the moment when we fully understand why we can't prevent all accidents, we'll be able to prevent them. We're just, and, until we sort of have that perfect understanding of what creates accidents, we're going to keep arguing every time the accidents happen about whether we could have prevented it, whether we can prevent the next one. And we'll be wrong every time. We can just only hope to be a little bit less wrong with each generation. And I think so by the sheer nature of complexity means that you know the, the complexity scientists would have the view that you can never fully understand you know a complex system so at least i guess that gives us lots of reason to do another you know another 100 episodes drew so maybe we should target 200 episodes by our five-year anniversary so if we pun punch them out at once a fortnight for the next two years around uh this time in 2024 we should be doing episode 200 what do you reckon sounds like a plan all right, that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for the next 100 episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.